This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Straits Times monthly webinar series. I'm Zakir Hussain, Singapore editor, and I'll be moderating today's session on race relations and harmony. First, let me share some housekeeping matters with our audience. The session will be approximately 50 minutes. For those who have submitted your questions in advance, thank you, and we'll try to address them. And for those of us joining via Zoom, do send us your questions by clicking on the Q&A icon on your screen. A recording of this session will be on the Straits Times website this evening. Now, recent months have seen an uptick in race-related incidents and greater discussion of issues concerning race. These have fueled heated debate. What's the situation on the ground like? Ahead of Racial Harmony Day, we have decided to explore the experiences of individuals and see what we can do to improve understanding and trust among people of different races. We have a wonderful panel joining us in the studio today. Mr. Edwin Tong, Minister for Culture, Community and Youth. Dr. Shahira Abdullah, nominated MP and member of the National Youth Council. Mr. Leonard Sim, General Secretary of Hash Peace and a youth advocate with OnePeople.sg. Mr. Hafiz Zanjani, grassroots activist and a youth advocate with OnePeople.sg and Mr. Tamilavel, news editor and digital editor at Tamil Murasu. For the first part of today's session, we'll invite our panelists to share their thoughts on the topic and propose some suggestions to improve things. We will then move on to questions from readers as well as our audience. Now we'll begin with Minister. We've seen an uptick in racially charged incidents as well as more discussions on the topic. Um, why is there this surge? Is Singapore changing or is something else uh, at work here? Well, Zakir, uh, thank you very much and uh, good morning to all my fellow panel members. Uh, very nice to be here. I, I think in race relations, you don't look at it just at sporadic moments. I think what's important for us to look at and chart our progress is where we've been and how far we've come. And I think you take a longer lens view of, the, of things. Uh, on this, I think we generally would say we've done reasonably well. We started as a young country in the 60s uh, to where we are with education, with a lot more of the outcomes from structural policies that has been put in place to encourage integration, mixing. I think we've seen the benefits of that. Today, I would say there are a couple of challenges which perhaps have marked some of these occasions that you've mentioned. One, of course, is uh, amplification by social media. The rise in social media, internet connectivity, people being a lot more plugged in, I think has lent itself to maybe not more incidents, but certainly a lot more of an application of, amplification of the incidents. The second, I think, is some of the international influences. Uh, we are not immune to that. We can't be impervious. And I think we are also been seen uh, you know, as a ground where some of these influences have taken some root. It's important for us to deal with the issues, you know, and I think with each generation, you need to find a new balance. So our basic race relations, harmony, structure, I think has been there, it's worked well for us. But with each new generation, with each, each new challenge, thinking, philosophy, the balance, I think has to be struck differently. So we will have to look at this, I think, in the longer term. I am not sure that I would say that there's an uptick only now because of uh, a particular flashpoint, I would say there's several issues coming together. But it, it does mean that it's constant work in progress. We have to deal with it, we have to address it, we can't shirk from it. Okay. 
Thank you, Minister. Let's hear from our panelists, um, Dr. Shahira. Mm. What are your thoughts? Okay. So for me, I feel that social media has a very big impact on this whole race relations thing because of the fact of the COVID pandemic. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of consumption of content online. You can't go out. You tend to scroll Facebook, Instagram, websites, and things like that. And because of that, like Min has said you tend to see, um, uh, you tend to tap on experiences that are happening overseas. At the same time, it's also when you're online, you tend to be a bit more brave because you hide behind anonymity. So whatever experiences, whatever things you wouldn't have talked it out outside with other people because you feel like it might be inappropriate, you, it removes that layer of inhibition. And then a lot of the times you tend to uh, share things a lot more, a lot easily a lot more easily, basically. So when it comes to that, what has been under the surface previously comes out a lot more right now. So it may not be that there's an uptick, just a lot more sharing, a lot more awareness on this, and people are picking up on it. It's easier for people to pick up on it. Yeah, so that's what I think. Yeah. You've been involved in some of these efforts for some years now, yeah. and, and some of these have moved online. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I agree with Dr. Shahira here that uh, mostly, I mean, I don't think that it's something that we see uh, that there's an uptick of, but rather that uh, because of people taking to the online space, that uh, it's a lot more prominent because you can just as easily, you know, take out your phone and film something and put it online in a matter of minutes when, uh, you know, many years ago, that's not a possibility, right? Um, and, and because of this, uh, there's also what I felt um, after having some discussion with a lot of friends and um, uh, on this issue is that we feel that it's also, we also come to a stage where there's sort of uh, like a Me Too kind of movement in, in, in this area uh, where sometimes you don't even need to say that the video clip that you're posting online, for example, is... Uh, yes, you might not be saying that, oh, this person is uh, racist or this person is insensitive. You just need to post a video online and the you know, netizens would just, oh, that person is this, that person is that, right? Um, when the original poster has not even said anything, they just, I've experienced this today, right? And people start lumping things together, right? Uh, if they see a certain like, um, type of video that's posted online that fits into a certain style or certain kind of uh, action and, and they, they would be very quick to oh that's this, that's that yeah. Hafiz, uh, do you have thoughts on this? Um, I have to agree with everything that everyone said before but I think something to keep in mind is that just like everything else things on race and, and harmony are always in a state of entropy so they will tend towards chaos all the oh. time which is why we need to constantly do work um, and, and, and have to notice and also acknowledge all the progress that we have made so far. And we have made a lot of progress, I think. I was speaking to one of my friends the other day and, and they were complaining about all the racial incidents oh. that were happening. And, and I told them, actually, these things happening, if they happened in the past, people would riot. The fact that now we can go online and we can talk about it, I think it shows good progress that we are making um, in, in, in this field. Um, of racial and religious uh, harmony. Uh, at the same time also, that's also, you know, this entropy that, that happens, I think this is when things like uh, community pressure or even our laws, they come in place to maintain and ensure that 
there is harmony and that it is upheld and they don't and things don't divulge into chaos. Uh. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point. And I think we in the media tend to be very cautious and kind of picking up on some of these issues. But with social media and so on, a lot of these also um, do get aired. And I wanted to invite Tamil to share some of his thoughts on this. And, and yeah, I agree. We have come a long way you know, over the years in terms of racial harmony. But definitely a lot more can be done. Especially when you see each generation, I think it's a generational change and shift, especially with like what Rowan said with the social media. It's actually amplified things. And I think we've got to listen to the youngsters as to what they want. Uh, at the same time, having a balance, racial tensions oh. issues have always been there. In how you how you mitigate, how you you, you you go about doing it. You know, when I was younger, I mean, you hear things, but you just go brush it off, and then it's just a, it's such a joke. But the same thing now it becomes a racist comment. So where do you draw the line between racism and insensitive remarks? So what we have done, I mean, we've done a feature on with youngsters, youngsters' voices, and most of them, in fact, all of them said we know more awareness is needed, more education is needed. Where and how, I think that's what we have to discuss. If I could follow up on that, you know, we've seen a lot of these calls for more frank conversations on race and racism mm -hmm. online. And, um, you know, government agencies and others have, have done that. But there's still a perception out there that um, some of these uh, discussion could actually worsen or widen the divide rather than improve things. You know, what are your suggestions for channeling these conversations in a way that is constructive? Um, and if I could get you to share one thing you feel could be done to address these issues, whether you know, a deficit enableliness or a lack of just understanding. Zakia, if I may start on this first, I, I, I think it's important to have that dialogue. Mm. I think the worst thing we can do is to ignore, to marginalise and to um, put aside these views and discount them. I, I know many of them and I share Leonard's view because the context is important. Yeah. You put up something and it's out of context and it has a life of its own. So having a conversation on what it actually means is useful to exchange views. And I think exchanging views is the start of understanding. And you cannot get to embracement and harmony without understanding. So I feel that those dialogues are important. Uh, I, I share an experience with you in the context of neighbourliness since you mentioned it. But I think it also works in the context of how we build race relations in Singapore. Uh, I have a street in my constituency, Jalan Pindang Tiga. It is, if you Google it, it is now known as Singapore's friendliest street. At least, the, so far, I think the only one. It was definitely the first one, but Marshall is the only one now. Uh, and an accolade given by the Singapore Kindness Movement, and we worked together with them to get the accolade. And you know, we 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 had to justify why that was so. And the reason why that was so is because the neighbours knew each other, they opened their doors to each other, whether you're Indian, Malay, Muslim, Hindu, Christian, I think there was a real camaraderie among it on the street. We used to face, I used to face lots of complaints from neighbours in the street about parking, about pets being on the loose, trees and leaves falling, all of which are part of the problems of the street. But I found that with each year, as they potlucked together, they celebrated it together, and every year it's around National Day, mm. at a big carnival, they close the street. And uh, with this coming together with more understanding, with more, I know who my neighbour is, I will resist pressing on the horn a, a bit more, I will not call the police each time the car mm. comes two inches closer to my gate, and I, I will, you know, instead reach out to my neighbour, and I think we start a dialogue this way. So I found that the tensions, municipal tensions came down noticeably because of this, because they knew each other. So if you extrapolate that to race relations, religious harmony, I think the same can go. And the principle there really is, the more you know 
of someone from a different race, different culture, different background, the more accepting you will be because it's personal to you. It becomes, you become personally invested in it. And I feel really, ultimately, this is the way to go. You mentioned laws earlier. I think the laws provides the framework. They can tell us what you can't do and we must enforce that. But the laws can't tell us what to do. What to do is got to be from community, organically, from society, you know, religious organizations, uh, grassroots and so on. That, I think, sets the framework. But the actual dialoguing, the actual relations to being built must be done by the people on the ground. Are there suggestions on how these can be done on the ground, perhaps? If I can invite Hafiz. Sure. I think the Minister mentioned grassroots. Um, so, definitely, I think grassroots has a, a, a lot to play in this area. I think a lot of times when people talk about grassroots, they think of us as separate from the community. But actually, we are a part of the community. We are your neighbours. We, you know, we, we, are, we are there on the ground experiencing with you. And what I have found is that through times of hardships or calamity, things like what Minister said, they, they happen. People get to know each other, they, they experience life together, and they just have a little bit more empathy for one another. So I'll just give you an example. Um, recently, one of uh, the neighbours in my area, they, their son passed away. And what happened was that everyone else in, in our area we took turns to um, prepare food for them. We took turns to take their kids to school. Um, and somehow or another, I'm not sure how it happened, but we just got to know everyone a bit better. We collaborated and, and, and came together. And then we just had a little bit more empathy for one another. And I think if we can build empathy for one another through whatever ways that we can think of, I think that would be a good way to, to start trying to build uh, friendships and relatedness between people of different races um, and this can be done through many different ways you know like the most classic way is traveling meeting up with people finding out that they are human but now with COVID and whatnot I think literacy is a, another very good way of doing it just getting to know other people's culture and realizing that you're not very different after all so I think yeah these two things I think it'll start has to start at home at, as young as possible in schools in schools we're already doing well, maybe it's time to explore what more could be done. And it starts in, at home. I mean, at grassroots, you mentioned. Uh, I can share an anecdote many times, you know, when I go in the lift. There's once where a small kid calls me a transcendent name of a, you know, Indian. La. Then the, the parent just stands, stares and does nothing. But on the other hand, there's this another neighbour who just tells the kid to say, Hi, uncle. Morning, uncle. Say bye. So I think it starts with the parents and, and kids. And, and, and after that, Sports, I think sports is one uh, uniting factor which we had many years back, you know, those old enough will remember the Malaysia Cup days <laughs> and football, so oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> sports is definitely a uniting factor. I mean, not, okay, not just Malaysia Cup, I mean, let's go to schools. The school levels, you see participants, you know, is the school sports scene, how is it? So, yeah. Can I say something about sports? Sure, yeah, we've got the Olympics we, coming we, up as well. <laughs> yeah, the Olympics coming up, but you know, in, uh, again, going back to Juchet, we, every year, until, until last year, we have a inter-religious football tournament ah, yes, and it yeah. was wonderful to see you know we had a team from the temple from the church a few yeah. from the mosque and uh, coming together and That's you know right. we had schools there yeah. and you know on the field like uh, you there's there's no <coughs> distinguishing factor beyond the fact of can you score a goal can you dribble the ball That's can right. you do well if you can you're part of the team i don't care whether you're indian malay muslim chinese yeah. whatever it is 
And I think these are occasions where we have a real lived experience. And when you do that as part of a team, you then enhance the circle. You might then go out for a drink together. You make plans on how to strategize, you know, and you can come together in a lived experience. It's not a manufactured experience. It's a day-to-day -day thing. And this, I think, are the platforms we need to build. In fact, I think my colleague Siu wrote about the uh, two youth in one of these football teams uh, not too long ago. And we'll, we'll share that with readers. Um, Dr. Shahira or Leonard, if you've got view, have you got views on this? Um, okay, so I do agree that frank conversations do have to occur. A lot of the times right now, though, the manner that occur makes a lot of difference yeah. because um, on social media, I mean, there's no one controlling. It's very hard to control things on social media. Um, the manner in which it is put out may be degrading, may cause a lot of people to be defensive, um, may be kind of attacking, and this kind of closes off the conversation before it even starts. So there's a thing about call-out culture in which you call out the racist events, but when you do it in a way where the other person gets offensive, then nothing comes out of it, except for anger, tempers flare, you start talking about your own experiences just to vent, but not as a way of moving forward, you see. Mm. So I think moving forward as well, we need to develop the language, the vocabulary, to be able to, I would say, uh, verbalize your experience as well, and then go in with the intention of these dialogues on moving forward instead of just venting, instead of just saying it's not fair. Yeah, so that's what I think. That's a good point. I'll build on what uh, Dr. Shahir has said, because it's very interesting that, uh, you know, sometimes people say when we talk about it, we can't really, you know, move forward and all that. Um, but it's when we talk about such issues, it you start to understand that these issues affect us in many, many different ways, right? Uh, recently, uh, at Hash Peace, we had this conversation about race and um, mental health, mental well-being, mm -hmm. and we are very lucky to have the support of Mental Act, so they are mental health advocacy uh, group, and uh, they helped us in a way that uh, we provided a space for uh, participants to come and share about their experiences. What is it like facing um, discrimination uh, on a daily basis or having had faced discrimination before. And you get conversations that are very real, very raw. Out, outpours of uh, sometimes grief, trauma, emotional hurt. And we're very lucky to have uh, our partners at Mental, Health, uh, Mental Act to help us and really make sure that they are okay, that uh, they are, uh, that they are uh, healing from these experiences. But what we at Hashbees get out of it as well is that you start to realize that uh, we need to do more, right? These people shouldn't have to face uh, discrimination in terms of uh, job opportunities or housing or even in schools. So where can we move this conversation towards? And uh, how can we talk about solutions, ideas uh, to move forward in this, in this space? But to do so, you must first start to confront and understand that these are very real experiences that people have mm -hmm. and understand where they're coming from. I think at OPSG, um, they also host a lot of dialogues on uh, race relations and really uh, looking at how we can move things forward. So that's also something that uh, one people is, is doing in that sense. But uh, just to build on um, 
uh, what uh, Term Level and Minister and Hafez has also shared. Uh, another area that we are looking at, I mean, a lot of our initiatives are, look, are looking at schools, community areas, right? Uh, Hashpiece is also looking at businesses, workplaces, because we spend a lot of time um, in the workplace, right? Working adults, uh, parents spend a lot of time in the workplace. So what are workplaces doing to, uh, you know, share more about discrimination, about diversity, about inclusion? Because when parents spend a lot of time in the workplace, their mindsets, if they, if they are able to change their mindsets, they bring these values home to the uh, to their kids. So I think that's an area that uh, we are also really hoping to look at. Yeah. All that thought. We've got quite a few questions from our readers, which I and, and I think I wanted to move quite nicely to the next part of our segment. Um, you know, we've had we've had quite a few uh, suggestions and discussions. There have, for instance, been calls uh, to make you know maybe racial harmony day a public holiday. So there's greater recognition, or should we accord racial harmony day a status similar to, um, you know, uh, SAFD, where where there's uh, some recognition of the issue as well. Um, and I wanted to flag two questions which uh, readers um, have asked. Um, one is from Mr. Ramesh Ganesan, and who's asked, how can we call out racism respectfully? And the second question is, how do we a related question? is how do we ensure discussions can be held in a tasteful manner without it erupting into a fight? Um, can I invite responses from our panelists? I, I think Shahira has hit the nail on the head. I think we want to have discussions, we want to call it out, but really the value of doing so must be, it must be constructive for it to have value. And so I just want to go back to an incident that I think everyone knows about, right? So Dave Pakash yes. posted <coughs> a video uh, and I've said this before, I, I felt that his response, everyone focuses on the uh, lecturer, but I felt his response taught us a lesson as well. He was measured, he was respectful, he, he knew he was wronged, and um, he was put in a situation where I think most of us, many of us, were reacted quite emotionally because it's a very direct, it's a very, you know, I would say, wrong, distasteful, but a very direct personal affront to him and his girlfriend. But he brought the issue up. I think he created a platform for people to look at the, the issue. And I thought his response taught us something. He brought it up not because he wanted to get back at, at him, but because he wanted to raise the issue and said, this is not something that we want to see in Singapore. And I felt that the dialogues that came up as a result of that, because of his reaction, made it more constructive. So we may be angry about something, but the response, I think, is equally important, which goes to, I think, your reader's point. I think definitely there has to be a, a platform where these issues can be raised. You know, for, for the longest time, we've been trying to say, don't talk about it, or let's just hide it under the carpet or something. But, as, as, you know, as, mo as, as you move forward, I think it's, the time has changed, and people won't do want to talk about it. And I think uh, the generation now, as, and even the older generation, are more... Uh, we're more accept accepting to these things because this is happening for, for a long time. You know, it's not something which came up new. It's just that, like, like you mentioned, social media has just amplified it. So I think there is possible rooms for, for us to have a decent conversation. And we have to throw these things out, frankly, you know, and just uh, to tell out. Uh, for, example, for example, the, the minorities just probably talk about within themselves. 
of their of their yep. whatever problems they have. And the majority, the you know, Chinese, they might never know what what these things are actually sensitive. You know, that's why you need to have a, a proper discussion. Yeah. And and also in in terms of office and schools, I think those with authority, power, teachers or whoever, they should be equipped with the the know how to handle these things. And it should be normal for it should be acceptable for people to come forward and say hey, I have an issue. You know, and it should be dealt uh, in a decent way, lah. Um, I, I definitely agree with what uh, Minister said, and I think, you know, if you can not put aside the emotionality of it, but really look at standing in, looking at what is going to make a difference in this situation, and reacting in that manner, I think, when we face incidents like this or we are dealing with incidents like this, I think the outcome will always be better than if we are putting emotion against emotion. But at the same time also, I'm also very mindful of if, we're doing, if we are doing that too much, then it might seem that we are putting aside or discounting the emotional pain that might be felt by people who experience uh, racism or racial discrimination. So I think that's just something to be very mindful about. And I think also recently Minister Lawrence Wong uh, spoke about it. Um, and really just accepting that, yeah, this is the experience that you have experienced. What can I do to um, you know, mitigate it or what can I do to, to make it better and with the lecturer incident he apologised, he came online he created a social media account and he apologised and I think that's a very good starting point and I think that shows that we are going in a good direction overall as a country Yeah, okay. I, I like Leonard's idea about looking at the different spaces mm -hmm. workplace, schools, homes because besides these high signature flashpoints there are also very many microaggressions that happen every day on a daily basis in the lift, like Tamil Levy says, in schools, in workplaces. And I think these are things which if we don't have a way to deal with, I mean like he says, from persons of authority, they fester, they foment, and after a while they leave a bad impression. So we do also have to deal with these microaggressions, not just only the big signature items. And this really is dealt with best by uh, venue, places mm -hmm. and also uh, you know make it part of the lived experience have people socialize have, have teams that come together it, it has got to be organic but I think we must also create the opportunities for such organic relations to to build up and to cement okay. can I just say also sure. because um, I liked what Hashby said with the mental wellness experts because a lot of times when you speak to I wouldn't say okay, people, people who have been subject to these incidences, they get very emotional um, and you can see that they are actually very affected by it. When there's someone who is trained and someone who is able to, um, I would say, um, control your emotions better, the conversations that come out of it is a lot better. So one thing is that sometimes when you have experienced these racist incidences, you don't know where or who to talk to. And a lot of the times, either it comes out on social media or comes out in a way that's not so savoury or something like that. Or even worse, if like, you're unhappy with your neighbour, the only thing you do is you go to the town council instead of, say, if you have a relationship, you talk to your neighbour. Why go straight to the town council, right? Yeah. Or nowadays, a lot of the times when you see something racist, you go to the police mm -hmm. and file a police report. And I feel that it shouldn't be that way, you know? Should it be the way where you need to go so high up to to, to, to solve something that can be done face to face when you have a relationship. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I feel like um, 
because of the fact that uh, now we are very well connected, I'd say the youths are more attuned to it mm -hmm. and they do want to speak more about it. So I think we should encourage it. In schools, I think we are teaching them to speak uh, respectfully or kind, kind of like go through issues in a better way. So I think this is something we should encourage. Mm. Yeah. And I think just to add on, um, it's also about why are we talking about mm. some, some of these issues, some of our experiences that uh, have come up. Because the one thing that we learned from uh, our session was that sometimes when people want to share about their experience of uh, discrimination or, uh, or, or racism, they are sharing with us not because they want to seek redress. It's not because they want to solve a problem or to answer the question, why was this person doing this to me? Sometimes it's just about providing a listening ear, listening, understanding, oh, you have faced this um, experience, right? Um, I'm really sorry that you had to face this experience. How can we manage uh, your emotions a little bit better? How can we help you to heal from this? It's not always about, um, I faced this experience, we need to do something about it to make sure that this uh, doesn't happen again. Of course, that's also a very important conversation to have. But really, sometimes it's just about providing people the space for them to share about their experience and to heal from that experience. We, we don't always have the answers. Why are people doing this to other people? We don't always have the answers. Mm. But sometimes it's just really good and really cathartic to let out and have somebody listen and acknowledge uh, your hurt, your anger. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's turn back to some of the other questions readers had submitted. Um, I think we might take two at once this time. We had Mr. Kairul Anwar asking, you know, racial bias exists. And I think in many cases, we see this in professional settings in everyday life. How do we move on from here? Zakia, I think there is a question of racial bias and also preferences. All of us yeah. are different. It's not just by race. We all have different likes, preferences of food. And I think the human being is genetically engineered to get along with people who have the same likes and dislikes. That's how we are. So I would not put preferences in the same category as prejudices. Prejudice is a bit different and discrimination. But at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that we are different. In fact, our diversity is our hallmark. That's our calling card. And so we start from being different, wanting to be different, actually. Uh, we are not homogenous, nor should we try and shoehorn our society into one which makes us all uniform. So we start from that perspective, and we should understand that. And that's why there are differences. These differences do mean that each of the groups will have their own practices or beliefs, which will be different from another group. I think the trick is for each group not to assert that space and keep it growing. The more there's personal space, the less there will be common spaces. And when there's less common spaces, I think there's less room for understanding and eventually uh, tolerance and embracement. So I feel that whilst your reader is right in his comment, in, in picking up on this comment, I also think that groups need to be sensitive to not asserting and pushing the common space, uh, their personal spaces at each time. And then I think we'll have a decent chance at trying to understand where we have commonalities and grow those commonalities. Are there thoughts? Mm. Um, okay. I think what he meant when he said racial biases could mean like 
there are instances of racial, racial discrimination. I mean, and how do we move on from that sort of dis racial discrimination? Um, right now, I think we know that um, there's a lot more public discourse on the lived experiences of people who have experienced this. And there's a lot more ways to tackle it, I would say. Um, uh, like I said, also, the youths are more attuned to it. They are willing to talk more about it. And they are willing to call it out, maybe in a more respectful manner, hopefully. And this is how we move forward to have more conversations, to build more relationships. Like I said, these relationships cannot be underestimated. It's when you have these relationships in which you have less, um, I would say, um, disagreements or misunderstandings. And you tend to give the other person a sense of, I mean, doubt if anything happens. So I think these kind of relationships you have um, and, the, and, the, and the feel that you have to know more about the other person um, always. Like for example, I was in this dialogue with Madrasa students a while back and I think it struck me that the one thing they felt that was very important about the Singapore spirit is the fact that we were multicultural and multiracial and I felt, and they thought that that was the main thing, the main defining um, point, the main point factor of what makes a Singapore spirit. So it's very heartening if the youth really feel that way and we continue to encourage them to know more, to learn more to um, internalize the fact that even though we are different, um, we celebrate our differences. And after that, um, and then we can make sure that even if there are racial biases or racial discriminations, with more understanding, we're able, we're able to overcome it. Yeah. Let me take a related question from uh, one of the that, that the reader had submitted, and I think this had to do with the self-help groups. Mm -hmm. This question is, is there a need to continue with the existing policy and self-help groups? Because some feel they perpetuate the polarization of separate racial identities. Shouldn't we be assisting all Singaporeans you know, across the board with the intention of levelling them up? Well, Zakir, the self-help groups, all, they help uh, all segments of society. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you know, you come across CDAC, Mandaki, uh, they, Sinda, and you know, they, they are not focused on helping only that race. But I would say this, you know, self-help groups or racial classifications, there's been some push to remove it and say, let's not have classifications and, and uh, say we're all Singaporean. But does removing that do away with the fact that racially we have, a, we have differences? We have different races in Singapore. Instead, what we try to do with it is to use this classification, the data that we get here, to be a lot more focused, looking at the outcomes and the performance, and to decide where more resources would be needed to help which sector. And we put those resources in place. And, and, I, and there are many examples of this, whichever through the SHGs, the self-help groups. And that is the reason why we, we, we do that. Not so much to polarize society, but to give us a better sense of relative outcomes, performances, and we use these markers to help in that. You take the recent debate in Parliament about EIP. If you didn't have a classification, you're not going to be able to support the EIP. And the EIP is, as uh, my colleagues have explained, a very important policy. If you, it's not just about flats. It's also about the environment around flats. If you had a, f a, a precinct that was predominantly one race, you know what will happen to the schools around it, the shops, the services, the related community services around it. So it's going to be something that 
doesn't allow for mixing and integration in the same way as we have experienced it. So I, I, I think that uh, these groups, they, on the contrary, don't polarise. I think they seek to bring together. So I, I hope that answers your reader's question. So I was from Mendaki Club. <laughs> so that is, uh, to give you a bit of a background, it's a youth group for Malay Muslim youths. Yeah. Um, and to say that we only concentrate on Malay Muslim youths is false because a lot of our initiatives, a lot of uh, what we do is for the wider community. That's our main thing. Like we, like for example, we have something called Leadership Incubator in which we co-create solutions. And the solutions are not just for the Malay Muslim community, they're for the wider community as well. And that's something we always drill into everyone. You don't live alone. You live with everyone, of other races, other religions. Um, and when you want to become a, a good human being, someone who is useful to the world and everything, then you need to think about other people other than your own community. Um, and that is what we usually do. Even recently, there was a Singapore Buddhist Lodge in which you can see that they've actually uh, provided aid to not just Buddhists, but Malays, Indians and everyone as well. And I think that's something that can be commended. So even though we do help these self-help organisations, their help is not limited to just people of one community. Yeah. That's part of our DNA. Exactly. Yeah. I think right? Buddhist Lodge. Temples. I've gone to many of these Chinese temples, Taoist Buddhist temples, and uh, you would imagine that their members, their worshippers, are not from the Indian or Malay groups. But I attend their bursaries and scholarships, and I see a whole mix of races coming forward. And I think that's a part of our DNA. It's not just in the self-help groups. It's also part of our society, societal structure. Can I also quickly yep. add that? Uh, I mean, I guess it's a good aspiration to have, where one day we would not need this. Uh, different groups, but at the moment, I think each in individual race or culture have their own differences, own nuances, which mm. I think better uh, appreciated, better tackled when there's a self-help group for individual um, races. And for example, in the Indian community itself, it's not very homogeneous. It's very diverse in itself. You know, you know the Tamils and, and the different language, you, you go there, you know. So I, I think at the current, current moment, I think it's, it's necessary, but we can aspire you know, in, in forward, move, to move forward. And like what Dr. Sharia said, I mean, they, are, they don't just work in silos. They do have activities. They cater to the wider community at large. So that's Def Definitely, it's a part of our DNA. Uh, I think um, the self-help groups, they have their own niches as well. Each, each of them, yeah. they, they are good at doing what they do, and, but they are also willing to share and be open and to invite others in. Um, in fact, maybe I can just share very recently, uh, and this is not the self-help groups, but very recently a Catholic church reached out to us and they were telling us that they have this group of uh, Malay Muslim youths who are, who are not attending school. And they are like, we think you can relate better to them. Will you come and talk to them? And of course we said, yes, of course. We, we went and we went and talked and we spoke to them. And yeah, definitely they could better relate to us because we spoke the same language, we share the same religion. There are a lot of commonalities. So I think that's also very important um, things which uh, you cannot discount. They are, we are in the end diverse, different. And so, but once you find someone a bit more similar to you, maybe that makes a difference um, when trying to give or seek help. So I think yeah, definitely a part of our DNA. And I don't know, maybe I don't share Tamil's view about one day getting rid of all, all, all of them. Lah. Yeah, I think they still have a, a, a part to play. 
at least in my lifetime. <laughs> Actually, in terms of data, yeah. I think because we are afraid that we collect data according to race, um, you end up perpetuating certain stereotypes like maybe Malays are lazy or something like that, right? <laughs> so I think that's a real worry. But I feel like somehow there are certain periods where this kind of data need to be collected, for example, in housing and EIP. I think that's very important in languages and everything. Yes, you do need to collect that data. And if there's other data on other outcomes, I'm from health, so if the I mean previously in the budget they said something about having a, a task group yeah. for um, uh, improvement of um, uh, the health of minority groups. So I had a bit of an issue with that because sometimes um, in certain areas when you collect data, you do know that for things like health, there are many many other confounding factors. So data is there, you have this data, but you must only contextualize that data. Mm -hmm. So always collect more data other than that. Is it the person, I mean like this particular group having a bad or not so good health outcome because of education, socioeconomic status, what other things that are playing into it. So data is there, it is so important I feel, I mean it's still relevant to have this kind of model but only have uh, more data to support it and to contextualize whatever data you have. Yeah. That's an important point. Let's hold that thought um, while we shift to questions from our Zoom audience. And we've got a few. Um, the first is from Michelle Beam, mm -hmm. who's asked, and how can we improve the way we educate our young, and especially primary school pupils, on race relations and make Racial Harmony Day celebrations a bit more meaningful beyond just food festivals and fashion? Uh, maybe I'll invite Leonard to uh, start responding to this first. <laughs> How can we make um, Racial, Racial Harmony, Harmony Day, Day more meaningful? Just food and, and right. And dressing up. I think schools need <coughs> to play a very important part in creating opportunities for students to make friends. And when uh, you know, one kid says to the other kid something very insensitive, right? don't be afraid to confront it and mm. say, why did you make that comment? Why are you saying something like that uh, to this other person, to this other student? And try and find out where they get these ideas from. And I think that's where schools can come in to uh, educate, in a sense. And Racial Harmony Day, uh, definitely, uh, you know, apart from food, uh, ethnic wear, and uh, celebrations and all that, also try and weave in probably some um, conversation, you know. Uh, if you had, if, if in the school, you know, you, you are aware that there were some incidents uh, where this, this uh, student said something insensitive to the other student. Right? Let's have a conversation about that on Racial Harmony Day. Why, why did this student say this to that other student? And have everyone join in the conversation in, um, in the classroom right? as, as a learning point. I think that will be uh, something that can be done better and will probably make Racial Harmony Day more meaningful. But I'm not saying that what we have now is not meaningful in a sense. Uh, I think it's still very important that uh, we showcase food, culture, language, and uh, uh, our ethnic wear because that's also a learning point for uh, students, in, especially in primary school, looking at their friends and acknowledging that they are coming from a different culture, from a different background, celebrating it, enjoying their food. You know, when you bring uh, all the kueh to school and then you, you sample a bit of the, the, the kueh or the pastries from uh, you know this family and all that you you start to learn that not everybody is the same around you and how can we celebrate that as well yeah that's an important point um tamil as a parent of you know young children 
What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I totally agree. I think more can be done or should be done in schools. Maybe a racial harmony day once say it's not enough. Maybe, you know, and that's when you are, you can wear ethnic costumes. You know, costumes play an important part in identifying the culture, and especially Indian Indian culture. I mean, of course, kids they are inquisitive. They want to know what's happening, and for for a good few years they're at home. They just see your yourself, your your parents, your siblings, and then you go <coughs> to school. You see someone of a different race. My my daughter when she went primary one and there was a Sikh boy, and then she asked me why is the boy wearing a turban. She didn't know what it was, so I had to explain to her that it's the culture. So this kind of conversation is very important, and uh, and especially uh, Indians girls like to wear put or the holy ash. So what does it represent? So I think there should be open conversation, or in fact, a more conversation about these things than just going forward on on, on academia itself. Uh, it's time, I guess. That's what I think should be done. You, you know, Zakir, I, I, I racial harmony has been important, and for all the reasons that you know my colleagues here have said. But I think the school is such a good place to have this kind of lesson and conversations. I think the children at that age, they don't come in with any prejudices. They don't know the difference of colour and race as sharply as perhaps you know someone who's older. And I think it's a great opportunity at that stage to inculcate good values. I remember when I was in school, we, maybe because we didn't have the internet or social media, we were a little bit more playful, careless perhaps, and we call each other names. Some of yes. them are names which were with, with racial undertones, yes. but very affectionately. And we grew up with those names. Today, I see my friend from school, I'll call him the same names. I maybe can't do it publicly, <laughs> <laughs> but he knows, I know, yeah. that it's a term of endearment. Yeah. And you know, it's uh, something that we were uh, carefree about. So I feel there's also some room in our society to look away, to not be so sensitive, to be less calculative about spaces, to not take every compromise that we have to give as something that's such a grave injustice, mm. but to really just learn to coexist. And I think these lessons that I remember we had on the playground, on the football field where we were in school, were invaluable. And I think this has for, for me and my, my friends, my generation, that has certainly shaped the way we look at other races today as adults. So I feel the school's a uh, great opportunity. I think we can build on Racial Harmony Day, make it more meaningful as a day, but also make it a lived experience throughout the year. If, if I can just add, um, I think uh, exposure is very important. Mm. Uh, the moment you expose kids, to anything they are unfamiliar with, they become inquisitive and they ask questions. So the more we expose our kids, the more questions they ask, the better it gets. Um, and of course, then we must also have the right people teaching them and making sure that the answers are appropriate and what we want them to, to, to take away from their school experiences. I think the other thing that um, I would suggest is teach our own children our own culture. For me, growing up, uh, I, I'm Persian. So for me, growing up, I had a lot of questions from my friends about the different things that I did or the different clothes that I wore. And I, many times, I didn't know the answer to this question. So I would tell them, okay, I'm going home. I'll ask my dad. I'll come back tomorrow. I'll tell you. And I, and I used to do that, right? So kids, I feel, when they are together, they are a bit more open. They are a bit more inquisitive, you know? And there's a, bit, there's a little bit less nonsense about it, right? You can, I, I've seen a young Chinese boy asked a young Chinese uh, boy, uh, a young Chinese boy asked an Indian boy, why are you so dark? 
And then the Indian boy looked at him and he said, I born like this. I don't know. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm just born like this. Any chance, but ah, okay. You know, and, and that was it. So, but if we can teach our children our culture, then I think, like, you know, simple things. Like, I mean, don't need to go down the whole his, history of it. But just like um, teaching your daughters why you use the, the holy ash, for instance. They might get a question about it. And if they are equipped to answer it, then I think that's, that's perfect, you know. Uh, kids teaching kids, uh, yeah. I think I think that's that's something that's something I would add. Yeah. Let me take this opportunity to bring in a question from another Zoom participant from Irshad, who's asked, "Should we have more safe spaces to discuss race and racism?" And I take it this is beyond schools. I think having more space, safe spaces is always good. It's a matter of where do you want to put those safe spaces? I think Leonard's point is good. It shouldn't just be in schools. It can be in other places where people interact, like workplaces and outside. So um, safe spaces can also even be online. So um, there are, uh, I, would, uh, I think there are opportunities for us to bring these safe spaces online. In a way, online space is a safe space for people to say whatever they want. But these safe spaces, also have to be moderated. So if we want to bring it online, we have to make sure there are people there who are able to make sure that the, the safe space does not become an unsafe space. Mm. Yeah, because there is a tendency for, for example, for a group to have the same lived experiences to gang up on another group. Mm. Yeah, so I think that's very important um, when you're trying to come up or uh, uh, come up with more safe spaces. Lah. Yeah. Mm. To build on, I think the challenge is how do you make it a safe space? I mean, space is everywhere. You can do it anywhere. But how do you make that space into a safe space? What is a safe space, right? Uh, and, and really, I think for you know, uh, many years I've been doing this uh, work in this area, it's about values in the space itself. How do you have somebody who ensures that everybody feels comfortable, um, or you know you have support available for those who need support, uh, in, and also to to make sure that everyone is okay to share and and learn from each other. That that is what I would see as a safe space. So really, it's it's about the values. And what I always say is, when we build a safe space, when we have a group uh, where we want to get into a discussion, we the one thing I always say is open heart, open mind. Mm. I've been saying this for many years, open heart, open mind. Um, you come in with an open heart, you come in with an open mind to learn, to share, and to, uh, you know, not judge, be respectful. That to me is a safe space. So that really is then the challenge. How do you make this space, this safe space, right, in different, different areas, mm. online or offline? Yeah. We have another question from a Zoom participant that I'd like to, to post to our panelists uh, from Joel Skadian, who's asked, how do we tackle casual racism, like backhanded race-related compliments, you know, or just casual joking about race among friends? I, I think this, this goes back to my point about yeah. microaggressions, <coughs> yeah, yeah. that we do see it. I mean, the story about the lift is unfortunate. I, I've heard, I, I've been going around to some of the vaccination centers mm. and I've heard some stories where uh, some people will say I don't want to be vaccinated by an Indian a Chinese person or a person from a different race I mean so these are I wouldn't say small but these are incidents that happen and I think we need to culturalize sensitize people to it mm. Leonard's idea of workplaces is important uh, we can't o also overreact 
we have to stand up, call it out, correct it. But it's a question of really making sure that we deal with this and not allow this to become normalized. Once it becomes normalized, then those who are the subject and the victims of microaggressions will feel that it's a lost cause. And when we get to that stage, it becomes a slippery slope. So these are all occasions where we have to be proactive, uh, deal with it, inoculate against the situation. But when it does arise, I think it's got to be dealt with. So it's, it's a long game, I feel. Uh, education, everything we spoke about today is really much a part of it, but it's something we cannot ignore. That's Can a very good point, yes, so yeah. as a healthcare so, professional. <laughs> yeah, so I think I told you the story before I came on. I mean, there are instances similar to what you said where I've encountered in my workplace as well. Like, for example, I have a lady come in and say, who sat on the dental chair before this? Is it an Indian one? Indian patient? I think you better clean properly. I don't want to sit on this chair because it's an Indian patient. So, I mean, you do get this. I mean, it is there. And so there is racism. Um, but there's also things called like casual joking or microaggressions, yeah. things like that. So I mean, your your story about the fact that I mean, you have a very when you have a very close relationship with someone, I guess sometimes it makes it okay for you to, I would say, use certain terms. Okay, but sometimes um, I also feel that uh, if you're to use it in a public space, like for example, you can't use it in a public space, and people to see it, and then they start to normalize it then like you also said, it's going to be a slippery slope. How do you draw the line? I've seen my parents do it, but my parents did it in a totally different context and someone who's very close to me, who's like my brother or my sister. So sometimes when you've seen it done too many times, it becomes okay, it becomes normalized. And that's when this casual racism or casual joking or microaggressions come about when you don't even know that you're actually doing it. Yes. You don't even realize you're actually being very aggressive. So I think this is something that needs to be taught into the psyches of youths and mm. children and something for them to be made more aware about. Very, like, I think it's very important. Lah. And I would say schools are very important for that, but I also understand that you know, they have their own curriculum. It's actually very tight. They have a lot of things to think about. Right. And at the same time, for the, I, mean, I have a lot of teacher friends. When they see um, children or primary school students, secondary students say, oh, uh, teacher, they called call me that name. Then how do you respond? How do the teachers mm. respond? So, they're very important because whatever response they give will actually yes. mold them in a way that will shape them in the future. Similarly with parents, I bet you also feel the same way. So I think it's a whole of society effort. It's not just the teachers, it's the parents, the, wo the workplaces, everywhere. Yeah. I think that's a good note on um, us to kind of start to wrap up today's discussion. And I'd like to invite each of our panelists to do a quick wrap up, you know, um, in 30 seconds. Or a little more, but what is your key parting message? Um, maybe I'll invite Hafiz sure. to start. Um, thanks. So I think fundamentally, um, conversations, exposure, is what is going to take us in, in the next uh, decade or so. I think these are important things to, ha to be had. I think uh, I would like to say we are safely behind the days where we are going to have racial riots. So let's take it to the next step, uh, expose our kids um, and have fun along the way doing it, not forgetting that in the end, why we are all here is for the collective happiness of our country la, yeah, and for ourselves. Yeah. yeah, I think that's about it. Thank you. Tamil? I guess uh, the fact that we accept that there is going to, going to be racism, but what level, how big is it? 
and how will you contain it? And I've done a good job. And, and, and for every single incident out there, probably 100 other good incidents to counter it, you know. So just focus on the positive, positive side. Accept this. It's going to happen, but let's tackle it as a whole. As unity and diversity, as they say. Well, let's have open conversations and more awareness of what is racial discrimination, what is racism, what, uh, what is right, what is wrong. I think, importantly, making friends is the biggest takeaway. Because when you make friends, you learn about somebody else's culture. They are your friend. So when somebody says something to you about this particular group, and you, you wouldn't be as quick to be like, oh yeah, I agree with you. Because you know that you have a friend who is not like that, who mm. is different, and you can share with that other person. No, I don't think so, because I have a friend who's uh, completely not like what you've described. So when you make friends, uh, you really start to dispel all the misconceptions, break all the stereotypes, and you really get to know them on a personal level, and, makes, and you will make you more interested to learn more about their culture and to, to learn more about who your friend is as a person and uh, their background and where they come from. And I think that's uh, very much uh, you know, in line with what Minister said very early on about his, uh, that street in your constituency, when they're all friends and they start to learn about each other. And then that's a very nice and good way to move forward from here. Just go out and make friends. Yeah. Dr. Shahir? I guess I would like to say that in a conversation, I think it's important to listen, which is to listen with the intention to understand to another person's perspective without prejudice. Then at the same time, the other side is you need to be brave to speak up, uh, have courage mm. and speak your own truth. But at the same time, do it in a manner which is kind, respectful and, yeah, and things will be better. I'll, I'll wrap up by saying that, you know, as we look at our country over the years, I think we have come far. And you just have to look at many other places in the world, even today, yeah. where racial, religious fault lines have really threatened to break the society apart. I think in that way, we have done well. And we must not forget that. Even as we see each of these issues that come up from time to time, and they will be continually. So it tells us that we've got a good system, we've worked, it's worked well for us. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, even as we deal with all the, of these issues that come up. Uh, but we do need to be uh, refreshed in our approach. As I said, with each new generation, there's a new balance. And also with technology, with uh, international influences, these are new challenges that come and you know, we are buffeted by these. So we've got to deal with them, contextualize our solutions. And finally, I would say, if I can leave you with one thought, it is really to make the first move sort of what Leonard's saying, sort of what Tamil is saying, make the first move, break the ice, open the doors. I think these at the very micro, individual unit level will help us get far as a country. Thank you. Thank you very much, Minister Edwin Tong, Dr. Shahira, Mr. Sim, uh, Mr. Hafiz, and Mr. Tamil Avel for this most insightful discussion. And, and I'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this session. A recording of this webinar will be available on the Straits Times website later today, as well as reports online and in print tomorrow. Stay healthy, stay safe and stay harmonious. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. 
You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.